Welcome to the February 1st episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. We've reached the 112th mark. We are 112th of the way through scripture. And so I'm so glad that you all are joining me in this enjoyable journey as we're walking through God's word, seeking to understand it, desiring to enjoy it so that we can apply it in the power of God's Holy Spirit. I am Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and I'm so glad that you're a part of this growing family of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. Today's reading is going to be in Exodus 27 and 28, and then in Matthew chapter 21. Once again, it's Exodus 27 and 28, and Matthew chapter 21. If you haven't read that yet, I want to encourage you to hit pause, go back and read it, and then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast when I try to explain some of the things that I see in here and highlight some really cool points. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Okay, so as we get to Exodus 27, uh, I'm not going to highlight all of this, uh, points of this, because if you listened yesterday, uh, you heard me give uh, something of a visual tour um, from the outside of the courtyard, walking through the tent, passing the altar of burnt offering, then the laver where they wash their hands, and then stepping into the holy place where you had the lampstand on the left and the table of showbread on the right, and then the altar of incense right in front of you. And then the veil uh, was right behind that altar of incense. And then, you know, the high priest could go through the veil only on the day of atonement, only if he had blood. And when he went into that last place, the, the back one third of the tabernacle, that was called the Holy of Holies, where the ark was. And God dwelt above the mercy seat. And so as I described that yesterday, I pointed out that it's it's it was built in such a way that it illustrates our progression in our walk, not just toward holiness, but in our walk toward getting closer in our relationship with the Lord, our enjoyment of the Lord. And so I do, when you look at the tabernacle, I don't want you to just see it as a building. I want you to realize that this is a picture of salvation. This points to New Testament truth, but it also points to the fact that ultimately God wants us in his presence. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, we're told that in the temple, which was the tabernacle part two, uh, the, the, the veil in the temple ripped from heaven to earth, from top to bottom. And so God essentially was saying, you can come in now. The blood has been shed. Jesus' blood has been paid once and for all. And so God, the tabernacle and the temple construction is a picture of God wanting us to progress closer and closer toward him in relationship. Uh, the only thing that I want to point out uh, in this chapter is specifically regarding the courtyard in verse 18, uh, regarding the size of the courtyard, uh, just so that you can picture it in your mind. Uh, in uh, Exodus 27, 18, it says the courtyard is to be 150 feet long, 75 feet wide at each end, and seven and a half feet high. Okay, so this linen... Uh, this linen curtain that went all the way around the tabernacle. It was much bigger than the tabernacle. This curtain that just created a perimeter where you didn't get too close. 
Um, it was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and seven and a half feet tall. So seven and a half feet tall, yeah, it's taller than anybody. So you can't jump up and look over into the tabernacle and see what's going on. So it was seven and a half feet high. Um, and then regarding the, the length of it and the width of it, just imagine a football field and then say, okay, I'm going to split that football field in half, lengthways and widthways. So just make, in your mind, imagine a football field and shrink it in half to, to where it's 50% of its size, both length and width. And that's roughly the size of this courtyard that's around the tabernacle. This courtyard tent, I mean this courtyard uh, curtain, was simply to keep people out. Um, but because of Jesus, we can go not just into the courtyard, we can go into the Holy of Holies because their temple veil has been ripped into, Jesus' blood has been shed. We don't have to fear and dread uh, the God of heaven. We can come boldly before the throne of grace because of Jesus. Okay, so let's look at Exodus 28. Uh, in verses 1 through 5, we have the priest's garments, but uh, at the front end, we're made aware that the priestly line is Aaron's line, Aaron's lineage. Uh, Aaron, um, Moses' brother, he would be the one uh, that would bear sons, that would bear sons, that would have sons, uh, you know, as they married and they would have kids and their sons would be in the priestly line. So, uh, you have that, and then we're told about their garments, just to set the priests apart. In verses 6 through 14, uh, we hear about something called an ephod. Um, just briefly, essentially, an ephod is an elaborate, beautiful um, apron uh, that the priests were to wear over his garment, but under the breastpiece. Over his garment, but under the breastpiece. And it seemed as if that this ephod played some part in determining God's will, or at least they would wear it as they were seeking God's will. And we see a little bit later on as how the ephod was being used, uh, that it was seen to uh, be something that was used when they were trying to determine what it is the Lord wanted them to do. Uh, unfortunately, later on, this would become an object of worship, pagan worship to the Israelites. It was never intended to be an object of worship. But that's one of the things that we'll notice even when we get to the book of Numbers and uh, read about Moses building the bronze serpent upon the pole. We're going to find out later on that they turned that into an object of pagan worship. And so anyway, so the ephod was like a very beautiful apron that tended to be seen as something that the priests would wear when they were seeking the Lord's will and going about their duties. In verses 15 through 30, we have the breast piece, not the breast plate, it's the breast piece. And uh, it contained 12 different precious stones on it that represented the 12 tribes of Israel so that as the priest was going about his business, he was clearly reminded that he was doing this on behalf of the people of Israel. He was doing his work for these 12 tribes. Um, and one other thing I want to point out in verse 30, it talks about the Urim and Thummim. Now we don't know a lot about a lot about this. Uh, some have suspected that one was a black stone, another was a white stone. Some have, you know, just speculated any number of things. 
All we know is that it was something that was used to determine God's will. Uh, you know, the it, it seems as if the priest would ask the Lord of the Lord a question and then provide two options um, and then reach in and whichever stone he pulled out or if he maybe t- threw the stones out, which one came out first, would seem to be the, the, the way that the Lord was leading. It didn't always work. Uh, they couldn't presume on, on this because there were times whenever the Lord would not speak through this. But that's what the Urim and Thummim is. It was a way that they could not just subjectively, but objectively be able to determine what the Lord was wanting them to do. I'm telling you that as New Testament believers, we have something more sure than that. We actually have God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us if we are saved that is given to us to, among many other things, guide us into all truth, bring things to our remembrance from God's word, and he's the one that calls us into relationship. He's the one that helps us with decisions. So we've got something infinitely better than the Urim and Thummim. Verses 31 through 35, uh, we have the robe of the priest being described. Now, the one thing that I want to point out here is that it says that it had bells on it. I'm sure you noticed that. And I'm sure you've probably heard what those bells were for. Um, while they were intended for other things, maybe, or symbolizing other things, it would seem that one of the primary purposes was as the priests were in the holy place and then as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, as long as those bells were jingling, they knew he was good. They knew he was all right. They knew he was still alive. He's still performing his duties on their behalf. But if those bells stopped and they didn't move and they didn't jingle, and time passed and they still didn't jingle, they would come to realize or they would come to at least suspect that the priest was found to be sinful or displeasing in some way to the Lord and the Lord took him out. And so the bells were a way that the people could listen to what the priests were doing as they were going about their business. Verses 36 through 38, uh, we read about the turban. This was the headpiece uh, that was put on by the priest uh, to set him apart for the Lord, but also it was to show that he bore the guilt of those who had come asking for forgiveness. This reminded him of his office as he was going about his duties, uh, interceding, as priest on behalf of a guilty people. But one of the things that we realize is that this this turban and what it signified ultimately pointed to Jesus, our high priest. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, right? Remember Matthew 4? And yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? Because we've got a high priest there interceding for us. Let us approach the grace, the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And so even as we look at this turban that reminded the priest that he was set apart for the Lord and he bore the guilt, uh, we have a greater priest. 
and whose name is Jesus, and he intercedes for us. He has not only saved us, but daily, moment by moment, he intercedes for us. And therefore, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, so that we can come boldly before a holy, perfect God who must judge sin. We can come boldly before this God because his son, Jesus, has died for us, paid our sin debt, rose from the dead to conquer sin in the grave. And he has given us by grace the gift of faith to trust him so that we are not only forgiven, but he has declared us righteous. And so as we come before the Father, we can do so boldly because we have a greater priest than any priest the Old Testament ever produced. Our priest, his name is Jesus. Okay, so we come to the final chapter that we're going to look at today, Matthew chapter 21. And uh, let's kind of quickly, I'll try to quickly go through this, but verses 1 through 11, uh, this is where Jesus entered Jerusalem as the Messiah, as the king. And we're told that, uh, you know, he had told a couple of his disciples to go into the town and bring a donkey and her colt. to Jesus. And he said, hey, if the owner asks you, hey, what are you doing? Tell him the master uh, has need of him and he will let you uh, borrow him. So we, you know, I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we might assume that maybe the one who owned this uh, donkey and colt uh, was maybe a follower of the Lord. And so they had an opportunity for, you know, just to just a couple of their animals at a moment in time that the Lord desired to have something, to use something for his purposes, for incredible purposes. It just so happened that this individual had what the Lord was looking for. Friend, I'm telling you, we ought to hold everything we have loosely, realizing that at any time the Lord may desire to use what we have our resources, our talents, or anything. And we ought to be willing to say, yes, let the Lord use it. Let him have it. Um, This was ultimately a fulfillment of uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11, that Jesus would come in uh, to Jerusalem on a cult. Um, But uh, one of the things is we may wonder, okay, what's going on here? What, why? Why would Jesus ride in on an animal? Because we're not told in any other time in his ministry that he rode an animal. Well, I investigated uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and it said this. It said, This was not the normal practice in which kings arrived, for they usually came as conquerors riding on horses. The colt was a symbol of peace. So that's interesting. So Jesus did not come in as the conquering king that they wanted, that they were expecting. They were expecting the Messiah when he came, that he would immediately set up his kingdom there among them. But Jesus didn't come in on a horse as a conqueror. He came in on a colt, which, according to the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, was a symbol of peace. There is coming a day when Jesus is going to come riding on a white horse, but we're not there yet. Um, This is where a large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road, and the the crowds were crying out, 
blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, you know, just in case you ever wanted to know the Hebrew for that, because it's important because Jesus said that, uh, you know, I will not come back until you proclaim blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the Israelites are going to be proclaiming that. And when they speak in Hebrew, they are going to say, Baruch Haba Bashem Adonai. Baruch haba bashem Adonai, and let us pray that the Israelites soon not only learn to say that, but enjoy saying that so that Jesus would come back. Uh, One of the things that we uh, may ask is what day of the week this happened on, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, It is typically understood to be Sunday, Sunday, and in fact, uh, now it is called Palm Sunday. Okay, so the, verses 12 through 13, we have Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, there is, I do want to let you know, there is a little bit of debate regarding whether or not Jesus cleansed the temple once or twice. It looks as if he cleansed it twice. One, at the, pretty much at the beginning of his ministry, and the other, here, at the end of his ministry. Twice Jesus cleaned out. I think it was twice, not just once, but twice Jesus cleaned out the temple. But what Jesus was doing was at least twofold. One, he was setting things straight, saying, y'all are doing this wrong. You've turned this place into a den of thieves. You're, You're robbing people of the experience of worship. This is to be a place of prayer and worship and communion with God and enjoyment of God and repentance and cleansing and forgiveness. But you have turned it into a place that so distracts from any of that that it's just craziness in here. It smells like animals. It leaves people with a bad taste because you're giving, you're, you're stealing from them by charging exorbitant fees for the convenience of having an animal right at the place where they needed to sacrifice it. Jesus was furious. So he was straightening things up. But two, I think he was stirring the pot. His time had come. He was within the week of that he would give his life there on the cross. And so Jesus was just stirring the pot. Getting it's as if you know he was going up to a hornet's nest and hitting it with a stick, saying, Okay, it's time, let's get things going. And so, the religious leaders would have definitely been furious, livid at this. Verses 14 through 17 Jesus healed the blind and lame, and children were praising him. And uh, the religious leaders were having serious problems with why Jesus is allowing such things. And he points to the scripture saying that it was essentially a fulfillment of the, the, uh, the Old Testament that this would happen. Once again, they would be filled with rage. In verses 18 through 22, we're told that Jesus came upon a fig tree, a fig tree, and he cursed it. What's going on here? Well, what happened was it says that Jesus was hungry and he saw a fig tree in a distance and it was the season for figs. And so Jesus was thinking, okay, you know what? I can satisfy my need for hunger with this fig tree. But he showed up and it wasn't producing figs. He couldn't satisfy his hunger. It promised to have something that it did not have. And this was a picture of the religious system in Israel. This was a picture of the Israelites at that time. And so when Jesus cursed the fig tree and it didn't bear fruit anymore, that was a picture of Jesus, the Messiah, saying, I am through, at least for now, with Israel. 
certainly with this religious system. But friend, I'm telling you, if you read Romans 11, you realize that while we are in the time of the Gentiles, where the Israelites have turned their back on Jesus, and this is the time where non-Jews, this is the time when Gentiles are giving their heart to the Lord. We're told in Romans 11 that God has not abandoned his people permanently, but is uh, looking forward to one day calling his people to himself. In verses 23 through 27, it says the, the chief priests and elders were questioning Jesus' authority. And I want you to notice as you read that, Jesus is not a helpless victim. He is not a helpless victim. He is fully in charge as he willingly moves toward the cross. He is putting them on the defense. He put them into a position where they were asking him a question, and then he said, I'll answer it if you answer my question first. He's in charge. <laughs> and uh, he said, where's John baptism come from? And they realized that they were in a catch-22. Jesus was fully in control. He was not a helpless victim as he went to the cross. He went willingly and completely in charge. Verses 28 through 32, we have the parable of the two sons. And in this parable, Jesus is condemning those who purported to be worshipers of the Lord and yet were not living for him. Um, Jesus said, uh, there was a son who said, hey, dad, I'm going to obey you, and then he didn't. And then there was a son that said, no, dad, I'm not going to obey you, but then later on he did. Which one obeyed? Jesus was painting the religious leaders as the ones who said, oh, I'll obey the Lord, but they in their hearts were not obeying him. And yet the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and everyone else who were not going to obey the Lord because they were living their life for themselves later on were trusting in Jesus and obeying him and living for him. And Jesus was celebrating sinners who were coming to salvation and talking down about those who were claiming religiosity, but it was all a farce. It was all a show. And then we have in verses 33 through 46, the parable of the vineyard owner. Uh, Jesus once again just incriminates the pseudo-religious folks. He highlighted that they were a part of a long succession of people who disregarded, harmed, and even killed God's prophets. And now they were preparing to kill his son, just like in this parable. Once again, Jesus is stirring the pot on purpose. He's not a helpless victim. He's in charge here, and he's stirring the pot that would get him put on the cross. But I also want you to know in verse 42, it says, Have you never read in Scripture? I want you to know that Jesus said that quite a few times. Have you never read? <laughs> I'm telling you, Jesus is gracious. He loves us, but I'm telling you, he doesn't have time for spiritual laziness. If you have been a believer for any number of time, in any prolonged period of time, you need to know God's Word. You need to continue to be growing in God's Word. Let it never be said of us from Jesus, have you never read? We need to know God's Word, understand it, and enjoy it so that we can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we thank you that we serve a risen Savior, a mighty Savior. We thank you that even as you were facing the cross, you were not shying away from it. You were actively stirring the pot. You were on the offense. You were actively in control, moving toward the cross. 
that would provide salvation to everyone who will trust in you. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us not to be stingy with the message of the gospel, that the, the gospel that has saved us. Let us share it with others and tell them how they can come to faith in you and trust in you and receive the gift that you died to give them. And Lord Jesus, I also pray that we would never also never be content that we're merely saved. I pray that we would realize that with that comes a stewardship, that we are to live the one life that you have given us in such a way that it points others to you, that we are pursuing you, growing in our knowledge of you, growing in our love for you, growing in our obedience and submission to you. Lord Jesus, help us, even as we have been saved, to pursue holiness and to seek you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our time together as we've spent time looking at the, the word of the Lord, looking at a few chapters and seeking to understand it and enjoy it so that we can apply it. And folks, I'm telling you, I am so, so grateful for you. Um, because if, if you were not listening, if you were not giving some feedback, sharing your insights and uh sharing how this is helping you um i would i'm telling you i would just grow discouraged and wonder why i would even do this i would do this for my own purposes but i certainly wouldn't take all of the time to make these podcasts but you are making this worth my while and in fact you're making this a labor of love so thank you so so much i hope you have a good rest of the day at whatever point you're listening to this that the rest of this day goes well and i'm looking forward to visiting with you and spending time in god's word with you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.